This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, March 14th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. When Mark Calabria became head of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, the chief regulator of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, it was not that many months before one of the sharpest and largest economic downturns in American history, all thanks to COVID-19 and the zealous reactions from various governments. All that had major impacts on the housing market, and it's all detailed in Mark's new book, Shelter from the Storm, How a COVID Mortgage Meltdown Was Averted. The book is available today. We spoke last week. Mark, years ago, you left us, we waved goodbye, and you went to go work for the Vice President of the United States as the Chief Economist to Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, You were there for a while. And then you became the chief regulator for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Now, just for the benefit of listeners, what do Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac do and what was your role as chief regulator? Uh, Great question. And so Fannie and Freddie, and the regulator also regulated the federal home loan banks, they are in the secondary mortgage market. So whereas you may go to a bank to get your mortgage, that bank may sell off the mortgage in the secondary mortgage market. So Fannie and Freddie would never deal directly with you as a consumer, but they would potentially buy the mortgage from the bank where you did get your mortgage. And so for people who followed the financial crisis closely in 07, 08, 09, um, Fannie and Freddie were, a lot of fingers were pointed at Fannie and Freddie for having an insatiable demand for mortgages. Needless to say, while there were uh, several contributors to the financial crisis in, in 2008, uh, Fannie and Freddie were certainly among those contributors and helped drive that housing bubble, that mortgage bubble, uh, which of course resulted in their failures in 2008 and also cr- resulted in the creation of FHFA, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, because Congress had decided that their previous regulator had failed. And so, Give it a new name, spruce it up a little bit, and hope that it would do better next time. And what is the status of Fannie and Freddie generally, as you understand it? You're head, you're head of the FHFA, uh, the chief regulator of Fannie and Freddie, but these are companies that, with respect to the public fisc, are what? I mean, they have a very ambiguous situation. So their charters are from Congress. And they have certain privileges um, and exemptions, such from some of our securities laws, but not all. And there's often perceived to be, this is the so-called implied guarantee, uh, there is a perception that Congress you know, or the regulator or the Fed or Treasury would come in and, and provide fiscal support were these companies to find themselves in trouble. Uh, and certainly a number of companies, you know, large banks, uh, you know, even auto companies or airlines, you know, enjoy some degree of implied guarantee in terms of government feeling like said company is so special. Now, it's also important to say none of that's in law. You know, there is no, you know, explicit guarantee of Fannie and Freddie, but they they live in that gray area of private company, but lots of ties to the government. All right. So when you came to uh, head FHFA, what was we were had the the financial crisis was well behind us, but uh, the after effects, of course, conservatorship for those agencies still existed. Um, what was what was your perception of the mortgage market broadly coming in? 
Great question. And, and for, you know, conservatorship is essentially an administrative bankruptcy. So the point was to fix the companies and put them back out. And that was Congress's decision. And I should certainly say and emphasize it's one thing to be a think tank scholar, it's one thing to be a, a pundit and commentator. Um, but I'm at heart very much an Article One guy, and my view was, you know, Congress makes the big choices. My job was to carry out the law as it was, and so we had had a very slow. I mean, as I'm sure everyone remembers, the Great Recession was weakest job recovery um, since in the post-war period. Very weak housing recovery. You know, housing was on its back for about a decade. So when I walked in the door after being confirmed in April 2019, we had just really started to see the housing market turn around. You started to see home ownership rates go up. You started to see construction come back. You started to see prices start to appreciate a little a little stronger, you know, even, even pre-COVID. So we were starting to get what I thought was a pretty good footing for the housing market. Now, unfortunately, also when I walked in the door, Fannie and Freddie were leveraged. So that's, you know, equity to equity to assets, if you will. A thousand to one, which of course no company survives this rest environment a thousand to one leverage. The companies really, in my view, had not made a lot of progress in the decade plus of conservatorship. So and of course the agency in, in, in many ways had not made a lot of progress. So I walked in the door with the view of Congress has told us to fix this, including trying to essentially, if not get rid of the implied guarantee, eliminate as much of it as you can. So we needed to fix the regulator. We needed to fix Fannie and Freddie in a variety of ways, most mostly raising equity capital. Um, but you know they had troubled corporate cultures. You know they had a lot of problems, um, and we were trying to fix many of those things while also trying to provide support for the housing market. Ian, given where we were by 2019, I was increasingly concerned that the housing recovery did not have that much more to it. Like at some point, you know, we were already 11 years past 2008. Historically, every 15 or so years in the US, we get a housing downturn. So I certainly was the view of, we're going to get another one at some point, and we ain't ready for it today. So uh, in terms of the housing market, uh, the housing recovery rather, not having much left to it. What were what were the data points that were telling you this this housing recovery is slowing, um, and we're approaching a peak? So you know you certainly saw pretty strong appreciation coming in, and, and you certainly saw construction numbers starting, you know, to pick up. And you know at some point we were getting to the place. I think 2019, we were finally getting, or 2018, finally getting to the point where we had recovered all of the construction jobs that were lost in the Great Recession. So you were getting back to where you were at the previous peak. You were also getting stretches in affordability. And at some point, uh, mortgage payments, housing costs relative to income you know they can't go on forever. You know, at some point, housing prices are just unsustainable. The activity is unsustainable. Now, I think we got a few extra years out of it, partly because of the tax reform that was done in 2017 and some dereg that was done, where you saw a bit of a boost to the economy that that probably was unexpected at that point generally, and that helped carry us, you know, into COVID. So the plus is is that once COVID came around in 2020. The housing market was in a really solid spot. 
but it took a decade to get there. Everything that we've just discussed is prologue. Yes. So uh, at what point did you suspect that your job as a regulator would be radically different uh, in 2020? Wow. Probably not till really the beginning of March. I mean, you know, the book starts in January 2020 when we start hearing um, you know about lockdowns in, in in China, and I believe January was you know the first uh, verified American case of COVID. But I don't think it really had sunk in until early March that this was probably going to be a lot worse than we were expecting, and you started to see slowdowns. This was obviously even before some of the lockdowns, slowdowns in economic activity. We were seeing certainly slowdowns in home sales. And it's also worth keeping in mind, I talk about this a little bit in the book, you know, you saw pretty dramatic from about March to May, the home sales dropped 30 percent. I mean, people were really pulling back and our expectations were, you know, very much that, oh, this could be another housing crisis, could be declines in prices. So certainly the um, boom we saw in prices and activity later starting in 2020 was a bit unexpected and, and had some pros and cons to it. Um, but it really, March was the beginning of like, okay, maybe this is not going to kind of go away. I am going to walk you through the events here using me as yeah. sort of the guinea pig because, uh, you know, I was uh, at the time living in Louisville, Kentucky with my wife and then two children. And uh, we were just about at the point where we were ready to buy a house. Uh, in February of 2020. And then all of this happens, and uh, my wife and I decide, well, we're still going to go look. There was almost nothing available yeah. very soon after uh, COVID hit. And everything that was available in our sort of search radius uh, was run down. It was distressed or a fire sale. Oh, yeah. Or they were largely just houses that needed a lot of work. And that's kind of what we were seeing at, both anecdotally and some of the real-time mortgage and housing data we, we were getting. Big pullback. I mean, and, you know, one can, one can debate, obviously, the lockdowns had a role, but you saw a lot of pullback even before lockdowns were put in place. And, you know, obviously, you know, who wants to have an open house if you think there's a virus spreading? And so we really did see a pullback. And I'll say as an aside, one of the things I tried to do in the book, as well as just being a policy book, is weave in experiences, you know, mostly my own during the crisis to kind of remind us of what it was like to be at it. You're working at your kitchen table all day and and things like that and the changes, you know, we all had to make in our lives, um, perhaps to document those sort of things for history. Now, uh, one other thing that I noticed, and again, this is purely anecdotal uh, based upon what my eyeballs took in, was uh, I suspect there were a lot of families who had uh, told each other, you know what, honey, I'm going to get to that home improvement project uh, <laughs> when things slow down. And then everything stopped. Uh, at, at least with with regard to lockdowns and a bunch of oh, other yeah. things, and so I saw home improvements going like gangbusters all across all across the city. And you see that in, I mean, a lot of the 
you know, bump up in lumber prices and things like that. And certainly in April, May, June 2020, forget getting a contractor. If you had not already bought your lumber or your bricks or mortar, whatever you wanted to do, forget it by that point. And there was a real big boom in home improvement projects. Uh, you know, one of the things I did you know, as a manager to reach out and connect with the staff all the time at FHFA was just, you know, touch base and ask people what they were doing. Um, and a lot of home improvement projects, you know, other crazy stuff like at least one person completely built a speaker stack and things like that. So, yeah, a lot of people tinkering around the house with things. Um, I will say the one story that always stuck with me in terms of talking to the staff was the gentleman who told me he bought a piano and taught himself how to play because he said growing up in China, his family was not allowed to have a piano. So, you know, as you saw that your job as a regulator might be uh, radically changing, as you mentioned in March, what was what would have been the nature of the crisis that you saw possibly unfolding in 2020? So there were a couple of things, but foremost, and you know, I was on Capitol Hill in the banking committee in, in 2008, and I had some very strong opinions on where I think things went wrong in terms of uh, the housing response and the financial response. So certainly a theme of the book is my takeaways from 2008 and why I felt it was important to do things differently. And so certainly one of the differences was a commitment on my part to focus on Main Street, if you will, rather than Wall Street and focus on the borrowers themselves. And also to focus on understanding, you know, we were still learning, you know, this was the time where it was all, we're going to flatten the curve and, you know, we'll get through this and three months later, everything will be fine. So we certainly were expecting both because of lockdowns and uncertainty and we're seeing in the data huge pullback in employment. And remember, we lost something like 22 million jobs in under two months, I mean, relative the the sharpest, short, quickest downturn I think in American history, and so we know we needed to give people a bridge. Now our hope was again flatten the curve. Everybody starts getting back, and of course, fortunately by June you had you we were experiencing a very strong job recovery at that point. So we were really looking at this and saying, you know, how do we give people three months, six months of pressing pause on their mortgage because they may need to stay home. Um, we had about 200,000 uh, families that were in some process of foreclosure pre-COVID. You know, and these are often fam you know, families, borrowers who had made a payment in a year or two, probably never going to get back on their feet. But you know, you didn't want to put some. You didn't. You didn't want to have the sheriff's deputy coming through the house in a pandemic. You didn't want to put family on the street. So you know, a really press pause and get to the other side of this with the focus on families. Of course, as discussed in the book in March 2020, because of A, the concern in the mortgage market that mortgages might stop paying, and then also because of the movements of the Federal Reserve that create a lot of interest rate risk, we also had a financial crisis in March 2020. And our response to that is detailed in the book. But the real focus really was Kind of creating a bridge, and you know, we hadn't. You know, I had the experience of seeing in pr previous crises that, you know, our unemployment insurance system takes two, three months to get someone to check. So, if you want to know at heart what we were trying to do was, we were trying to give you a basically a three month bridge, so that your unemployment check could show up at some point, and you could pay your mortgage and start paying us back. 
there are a number of ways that a bridge could be created. Yep. Uh, you can uh, talk to the people who uh, had extended those loans or held those loans. Uh, you could cut checks. Uh, what was the, you know how were pri- so, how were private lenders responding to that this uh, great question this idea? So it's important to keep in mind you know we were an independent regulator and you know we actually you know we put these programs in place even before the CARES Act was passed, which codified part of what we were doing. But in some sense, some of our options were off the table. So as mentioned, Fannie and Freddie were thousand to one leverage when I walked in the door. We didn't have the capacity to cut checks. It would have bankrupt Fannie and Freddie. So even though there were calls early in COVID for free rent and mortgage forgiveness and all of these things, even if I wanted to do that, I didn't have the money to do it. So there was it was the budget took that option off the table. Now, you know, in previous crises in 2008, there was a lot of paper chase, partly because the programs were means tested and they documented this. And we looked at this and said, A, we need to minimize the amount of human contact that's needed. Um, the mortgage industry was having a lot of backroom operations. So, for instance, a fair amount of the mortgage industry's backroom operations take place in India, which went into shutdown on a much more massive squ- scale around March as well. So, you know, the sort of vision of telemarketers doing servicing was constrained. At the time, you know, we felt that the ser- mortgage servicing industry probably lost about a 30% capacity when everything hit because of telework and shutdowns in India and other places. So we need to make it simple. You know, it really was, how do we keep this simple? How do we reduce the process? And I talk about, because this is, you know, in my opinion, the biggest gamble or rolling of the dice. And I try to be frank in the book about where, you know, what uncertainties we were facing. And we made the decision that we would, on the front end, take borrowers at their word. So we directed the servicers, the mortgage lenders to reach out or, or to also borrowers reach out to them and ask, you know, have you lost a job? Have you suffered some income? And if he said yes, we put you in with a plan that three months later we'd come back and check. Now, of course, that creates incentives for people to just abuse the system, but we also set it up and made it very clear, you will pay back. So the most you were ever going to get away with was a free loan for a little while. And, you know, given the interest rate environment and we engineered other ways to recover that cost. And so another theme of the book is everything we did in terms of helping, you know, over 2 million families, we found a way to pay for. Didn't go to the taxpayer, didn't deficit finance, uh, which didn't add to inflationary pressures. We kept it all within the system. And hopefully that's a roadmap for the future. But we really did lean toward being rather generous to people who raised their hand and said they needed help. So uh, this looks like, uh, in in a sense, a whole lot of different people on both sides of a of a big transaction raising their hands and said saying, "Yeah, I'll take a haircut." Yeah, I mean, and so essentially what everybody did, and I think it says a lot that. So we moved pretty quickly, and obviously Fannie, Freddie, and then if you include the Federal Housing Administration, HUD, FHA, you know you get about ninety percent of the mortgage market. But everybody else in the mortgage market who was not covered by us uh, largely adopted the rules we put in place, and I think and they didn't have to. So I think it was a testament that we kind of thread the needle pretty well, and that anybody who wanted to do this 
you know, chose to do it. We also had to create rental programs so we didn't have, because one of the things we saw very early, and this is no surprise given that so much of the job loss was in restaurants and bars. And, and so only about 40% of the job loss were households with mortgages. So we had to create rental programs from scratch. And those are very difficult because Fannie and Freddie have no relationship with the renter. You know, we made it voluntary. So this was all before the eviction moratorium, and which was not our doing. Of course, it was out of CDC and the White House. And so we set up a system where, you know, landlords could get forbearance on the loan if they didn't evict during that time for non-payment of rent. So we tried to make it a win-win. And, you know, at the end of the day, most of what we provided FHFA, the costs ran in the neighborhood of, say, six to eight to nine billion. And then we set up a way to pay for that within the mortgage market that could be avoided if you didn't use Fannie and Freddie. Um, so we did manage to end up, again, doing this at essentially zero cost. So, uh, and I know this is when you came back to Cato yep. uh, at the at the end of your time there, at your stunningly uh, <laughs> abrupt end uh, of your time at FHFA, um, that the taxpayer was not harmed in the process of in engaging in this. Yeah. So we put Fannie and Freddie in a much better situation. Uh, we actually ended up repricing a lot of their mortgages to put them in a better financial situation. Uh, the book ends with the Collins Supreme Court case of so the you know essentially the book is me me the Supreme Court putting me out of a job, and there's a little discussion of the case and some of the dynamics um, there. So, but and that's where the book ends. It the the book runs from January 2020 to the end of June. 21 and gives you that kind of insight. And there are conversations about our coordinations with the Federal Reserve, with Treasury, uh, what we were trying to do with Fannie and Freddie, and that what we were trying to do to provide overall stability. Because as mentioned, there was a reform agenda to fix Fannie and Freddie pre-COVID. Well, we didn't stop trying to fix them with the pandemic. We still, like many of us, had our day jobs, if you will. And so we had a whole parallel track of raising capital, trying to restructure the companies. And this went on throughout COVID. We hope that pandemics, at least for oh, 100 years or so, will be uh, behind us. But of course, we can't predict that. What are, are the robustness challenges that continue to face the housing market? Well, at this point, you know, we're certainly in a period of overbuilding, particularly, you know, in the in the on the apartment sector. Uh, we're going to see a pretty dramatic correction there, and we're obviously seeing a correction in the single family sector as well. So, we are entering a very painful period in the housing market. Um, you know, we tried to actually lean against the Fed, if you will, because the Fed was essentially blowing a lot of air into the housing market in 2020-21. I use that as an opportunity to tighten underwriting standards uh, and try to put borrowers in better shape so when the market did turn, they would be more likely to survive. And, and you know, fortunately, the Biden administration has watered some of those tightenings down. Um, but, you know, we are if, – if there is a um, recession with significant job loss – we will absolutely see problems in the mortgage market. Uh, most of it will be FHA centered, but you know there will be problems for Fannie and Freddie too. And we've already seen that with their earnings. Um, we've already seen you know we probably have perhaps missed the window to really strengthen them a whole lot more. But I'm proud to say that they are in a lot better place than than I found them 
and that's notwithstanding the you know approximately seven billion in COVID costs we incurred. So we we paid for that. We built up capital. Um, we repriced a lot of their business so that they would have better cash flow in in the future. So. They may be lucky to come through this, but they're going to have a bumpy ride, as will everybody in the mortgage market at this point. You know, the joke would start, what do you call a libertarian who becomes a federal regulator? <laughs> you know? Crazy. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> what, so what, what is that whole experience like? And did anything shock you about uh, how regulatory agencies function and their relationships with private markets, quasi-private agencies? A, 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 certainly a theme of the book is how I think being skeptical of government and realistic about how it functions allows you to be a better job as a regulator and as in government because you're, you're realistic about what can be accomplished. You're realistic about the trade-offs. And, and so one reason to write the book was I did want to send a message to there are libertarians who may think about serving in government that you can make a difference, but you know I also try to lay out you know the the warts and all, if you will. I mean, there were definitely probably worse than I thought it would be in several uh, circumstances, and certainly the amount of dysfunction was probably greater than I would have thought in terms of both at the agency and uh, at Fannie and Freddie. And I would even say maybe the most disheartening thing in some sense was the uh, much greater disregard for the law that within within the government and within Fannie and Freddie. And, and so I would say, again, I'm an Article One guy. My view is Congress sets the rules and you carry them out. And I think that a lot of agencies Statutes are looked at as kind of advisory. Maybe we'll do that. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll find another way around it. And I think that that is much deeper and more widespread um, than many libertarians even think, which we probably all think government is lawless. And so what I would say is it's even more lawless than you think it is. Mark Calabria is author of the new book, Shelter from the Storm, How a COVID Mortgage Meltdown Was Averted, available today. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.